Hey everyone, I'm Brendan Hill, and this is Forward Thinking, a podcast by Metagy. Each week, I talk to inspirational business owners, brands, and marketing experts to learn from their experiences on the front line and uncover what it takes to build a world-class business. Can your business afford to exclude video content from your marketing? That's what I'm exploring this week with my very special guest, Justin Wozniak, the founder of Vloggy and the person that actually coined the term vlog. In Vloggy, Justin has created the world's simplest video blogging platform that allows brands and communities to create their own vlog or crowdsource video content. One of the things that makes videos so powerful is its retention with users. And we touch on that with Justin, and one of the statistics we uncover is that 80% of all users can recall a video ad that they've seen in the past 30 days. So we touch on many video topics today with Justin. And some of these include how to produce highly customized marketing videos for your business on a small budget, developing a minimal marketable product, and why a picture is worth 1,000 words, but a video is worth 1 million words. So please enjoy this special video episode with Justin Wasnich. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So tell me a bit more about Vloggy. Vloggy is a collaborative video production platform, and it's really based at sort of community storytelling. And in some ways, the problem that we solve in community storytelling is that it's very difficult to have multiple voices in multiple locations with multiple perspectives mm. using traditional video editing. And that's really the problem that we solve. And tell me about the moment that you realized that video was the future. I mean, you were an earlier adopter of online video? Uh, I was actually. So in fact, it may be true that I invented or was one of the first people to coin the term vlog um, <laughs> or video blog. So basically... Twenty odd years ago, I was doing uh, making video case studies for Microsoft, and then I went from there back to being a, a journalist. And I was I started both the podcasting unit of a production of a publishing house, and also the video unit. And initially, we had a crew of five: we had a sound recordist and a cameraman and a producer and a presenter. Mm. And then the next one we did was four, and the next one we did was three. And of course, we had to rely on getting corporate sponsorship for each production in order to actually, we used to go to air shows and film them. And, but then there was one air show that they didn't get a very large advertiser and it was in Orlando, Florida. And I was going anyway. So I said, look, look, I'll just do it myself. So I basically on the flight over composed the theme music, um, did all the, all the graphics. And then I filmed everything, did Mm. the pieces to camera and walked around the planes and then edited it at night and put up on this thing at the time called the YouTube which my editor was skeptical of because oh. um, oh, no, we want to host everything on our own site. I said, no, no, you don't. You want to mm. have it on YouTube to get the reach. And I called it a video blog. And he was like, well, what are you, I don't even know what a blog is. Let alone a video blog. <laughs> and that was 2002, I think, or three. Right. So when you look back, there were a couple of people using the term before me, but not many. Mm. So I was definitely one of the pioneers. Wow. And how did you, I guess, realize this insight that online video is going to be massive? Well, so, I mean, you know, so that was the start of it, but I've, I've always dabbled in, in filmmaking and I've won some awards for short videos and stuff. But then really working in the tourism industry as a consultant, which was, I was a, up until five years ago, I was director of a tourism think tank. And then I did that on my own for two years. And basically every, you know, the challenge that everyone faces in tourism as an industry is that they need video and mm. hours and hours of it, not only for every location, but for every niche audience and for every social media. So 
at the moment, tourism videos are still fairly generic. It's a drone shot over the most beautiful thing. It's a couple clinking glasses because the cost of video is so high that you have to do a fairly generic video. But yet what they all wanted was, okay, I was in, speaking at a conference in Nelson, New Zealand and met up with tourism board there. And they said, oh, what we really need is ideal world, we would have a video series for disabled travelers because that's one target niche mm-hmm. of ours. But yeah, the cost would be too high. So instead we have to have, we, yeah, we're going to have to spend seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 getting a generic tourism video. Wow. And I said, well, actually, hold on. But everyone carries around iPhones. And at this stage, iPhones weren't, or everyone carries around phones, but they weren't necessarily high-definition video cameras. Mm. Where So that was where the idea really implanted. And I kicked it around and I built a prototype of a sort of a video capture and collection tool to try and make 90-second videos and prove the concept and prove that you could do it remotely without having to in many different locations. And that was two and a half years ago Wow! when we built the first prototype and basically been trying to do it ever since and battling with bandwidth issues and mm. all sorts of issues which affect video, which actually is why it's so complicated and expensive. And hopefully we've cracked all those. Right. So can you talk us through the app development process? I mean, it looks like you've started the correct way. You've proven out the concept with a MVP or a low fidelity prototype. What happened next? Definitely low fidelity prototype. Yeah. So the first one was I basically modified Typeform to handle video files. So I kind of hacked the code there and then built a front end. So it was a responsive website that basically handled bits of video. Then we assembled, we faked it initially, um, assembled it into 90 second short video programs. Right. And then we built the first actual working app that basically automated that capture thing. So what we actually wanted to do, one problem that we found in that, in the prototype phase was the quality of video wasn't consistent. Right. So we actually needed to do some stuff, and this is part of our sort of IP in the app, is we control the lens of the camera rather than we don't actually use the camera app. We use the lens. It enables us to do more stabilization and color saturation and color correction. We essentially grade the video using AI within the app itself to produce consistently high-quality videos from anyone who's using it. And that part of, so that capture component actually took us about a year to actually do. Wow. So that didn't leave much time to do the UX. And as a result, the user experience of the existing app still isn't where I'd like it to be. But it is very much now, it's MMP is what we think of it now. It's the minimal marketable product. So we reached MVP stage about December last year. Yeah. But there were still lots of features that we had sort of promised. And we've spent the whole time talking to lots of customers. And initially, we looked Mm. at just the tourism industry, but then we actually realized that anyone who needs to tell stories in a community, and again, those things I mentioned, if you need to combine multiple locations, multiple points of view, or multiple perspectives, then there isn't really a tool out there that does that. There are a thousand video editing apps, some of them better than others. And so that's not the really, that isn't the market we're competing in, which we kind of thought we were initially. Right. But in some ways, we are competing with other collaboration tools we've realized like slack not that we're competing with slack but Mm. any so we've broadened our our market much bigger than just travel and tourism even though that's where the use case came from okay and why are videos so powerful well videos have an about 80 percent retention rate in people's minds about three days later so if you read something on a page about 20 percent of people recall that information three days later 80 percent recall that if it's a video so actually, the old adage that a picture is worth a thousand words, 
people have been trying to do some metric, but we think that video is worth about a million words. Um, <laughs> but even so, I mean, video has that, if you look at how particularly young people consume information these days, it's very visual and it's mm. very video led. But yet the real target market for us, which is online communities or small businesses who want to reach who want to use their own customers in their in their video marketing. And for people who want to tell authentic stories as opposed to pure marketing videos, because the other thing which we've realized along the way is that actually people don't like adverts. Mm. People want content. This is a content marketing tool for which happens to be video, but it could be just – so this is why we called it vloggy in the end because the most compelling analogy was the blog actually people who are in who know about content marketing stuff their pages full of useful content mm. and this is what we're doing in video form we are allowing businesses to make not just one or two videos but massive volume of video because they set the parameters once they set the branding and then they let their audience their customers actually make the content for them and the degree of control they have is up to them right so they can select the best content that their audience takes and then how it works is that customers or anybody can actually start a production, which is a, a project in the sort of classic sense of, and then they can invite contributors to invite, they can invite contributors to contribute videos in 10 second chunks. Right. And then they can actually combine these 10 second chunks to make longer video stories. Now, this could be one-off episodes or one-off productions that a whole sort of mashup of stuff put together. But more likely, anyone who has a YouTube channel or a Facebook group actually will want to make a continual series. So anything you can think of, any hobby or any niche, they have something which interests them particularly. You make a series, you give it an identity, and then you get the members of that community to actually make the episodes for you because it's something that they're passionate in. And then you're driving traffic to your product. I mean, probably you'd still distribute it through YouTube or Facebook because that's where your audience probably is. But then the branding's at the end. So I guess you're leveraging this user-generated content for community building. Are there any early success stories of a company that's used the Vloggy platform for this? Yeah, well, I mean, we've only really been sort of live. So when I said the minimal marketable products, we've only really been live for about three or four weeks now fully working. Right. But we have had some Facebook groups who have actually used their members of the Facebook group to actually make the content for them. And they've been able to then sell on that content or sell on the rights to that content to their own sponsors. And we've had travel agency chains actually using it because for travel agencies, their big problem is that their agents, their travel consultants go on free trips and yet they get very little value. So the agency owner gets very little value out of that. But they also have to, legally, they have to report their trip for fringe benefit tax. So we actually created a way to automate that reporting. So okay. they get the PDF reports. In addition, the agency owner can very easily brand and use that those trips in video form, mm. not only to their existing market, but also by putting on YouTube, they can find new markets because travel agents quite often are the first people to stay in any sort of new resort. So actually, if that video content is branded with a particular travel agency, that's also indirect advertising. So talking about video, obviously, there's still a lot of barriers to entry that you're trying to solve. Yeah. I mean, for small, medium businesses that are listening, that want to get into video, what, what's your advice to these guys? Well, my advice to these guys would be now you can actually use iPhones to record the video for you, or iPhones or Android, um, because in the last year in particular, we've had a quantum leap in the lens quality and the processing power of cameras. 
within so actually Huawei have just done a, a deal with Leica and there's been Sony Zeiss lenses in Androids before. So actually Android's better quality, the top end Androids are actually better quality than iPhones, but both of them record in stunning quality now, yeah. um, even in low light. And this really has been the shift that means you no longer actually have to use a, a video crew. Now, we obviously offer one solution, which is if you have all the branding elements like a logo and and you have an existing audience that you can invite to be con- to be video contributors, then we are obviously a solution for you. But equally, if you're willing to edit it yourself, and there are many tools out there which are easy to do, you can produce a video now quite easily. But it is still the thing of, just like search engines, it is still a matter of getting it onto the existing distribution platforms. So mm. that is YouTube. That is, And keywording for YouTube is the same as keywording for, for Google. Because as yet, and we're trying to solve this problem as well, it's very difficult to actually analyze video and know what's going on inside it. Unlike a piece of text where you can analyze it, and unlike what's starting to happen with images, video is still quite reliant on people actually keywording and correctly captioning. Now, again, our system is attempting to automate some of that. Right. We do a first pass of analysis to actually look at the content of the video. But more interestingly, how those videos are used together. So remember that it comes in 10-second chunks. Every time one 10-second chunk is, is combined with another 10-second chunk, we're learning more about that combination of video. So an example, if a 10-second clip of a fruit juice bar in Bondi is paired up against in a playlist or in a video story, if it's paired up against a cafe in North Bondi, then we start to know, okay, well, this is, we can see the link there. But then when it's paired up, that same clip is paired up against a tattoo parlor in Berlin. With okay, well, and these are these are real examples I'm talking about. <laughs> we start thinking, okay, well, what's the connection there? And then we can actually see that they're done by the same person, initially the same vlogger. Right. But what we're building a machine learning engine to do is to look at to triangulate essentially and use data association between the pairings of videos. So we, our ultimate aim is is that brands, especially bigger brands, could actually completely automate their video production. If you have enough volume of it going through, and if people are getting paid, so we also have the option to pay in micropayments the contributors of the video. So this all relies on volume and we're not there yet. But the ultimate aim is to kind of automate video production. Amazing. And how do you plan to get people onto the platform? (laughs) We were having a discussion before the show. So uh, Brendan knows that we're in the middle of a very granular sales and marketing plan. And look, we're looking for customers who already have an audience. So who already have, so what we are not is a two-sided marketplace. What we are is essentially a software as a service, a tool to enable people who already have an audience to use that audience to make their video content. So we're going out, there's some direct sales, but mainly search engine optimization, mainly content marketing, mainly blog posts. All of this stuff is probably the most cost-effective. We kind of knew it instinctively, but we've just run the numbers and, and found the return on investment if the targets are reached, to be far greater in search engine optimization and content marketing and webinars explaining how they, because this is a a brand new concept, Mm. um, collaborative video production. And so we know that we have a lot of explaining to do before people would be willing to actually pay any money. Right. So a lot of education to come. A lot of education, yeah. Very interesting. So I know with your previous version of the app, you had a lot of downloads. Why wasn't it successful in the early days? Because essentially the version two of the app, actually, and version one, but version two, which we thought was going to rock the world, because essentially what it was doing was video tweets. 
you could record 10 seconds of video and overlay it and it automatically edit it together in with uh, 75 words. Uh, it's 150 characters in total. So essentially a video tweet. And we expected that to actually take off as a thing. But it didn't. And probably because we didn't ever really market it, but we kind of had this thought that it might just go viral mm. if people started using it and liked it. But then once we actually talked to people much more, what they really wanted to do was create longer stories. And now Twitter found its its particular, I mean, there are some people with short attention spans who like uh, using Twitter. Yeah. And of course, it's found its medium, it's found its niche really of being an adjunct to press departments to get some news stories out. And it has a lot of devotees. And look, we think that Vloggy will have that as well. But really what it was always about was making longer form videos. And by longer form, I mean sort of 60 to 90 seconds. Right. So still snackable content, but not that 10 seconds. And I think that that fundamentally confused people because they thought that it was about making these 10 second chunks. And people still do. And we get a couple of hundred a day, which is not bad. But it's that what we didn't explain very well, which is a UX problem, was how you combine those together to make longer videos and brand them. So, I mean, you guys are a small team. You've got a lot of responsibility. You built the first version of the app by yourself. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. And did you have any coding background when you started? Uh, yeah, kind of. So my first job after university was actually for what would be called now a startup, a digital television startup. Right. Uh, but in those days, we just called it SME. And it was, uh, it was interactive video buttons. So right. on TV screens. So this is back in 1996. And we had to go over to San Francisco for three weeks for the investor demos and all that kind of stuff. But during that time, I learned how to basically code. And then it's something which, as a founder, I basically had to teach myself everything. And this is probably one of my shortcomings. But I'm not all that good at delegating. Right. Because I fundamentally want to know how something works before I hand it over to somebody else. So even we're talking about today, I mean, FFmpeg, which is a video codec, which we use in ways we don't think anybody else has done before, I had to pull it apart even though our lead developer has got patents for us and patents for other people in this codec. Right. But I still had to <laughs> pull it apart and kind of understand how it worked right. before, which is, an, which is a failing of mine. But I can be quite a sort of micromanager. So I've taught myself to all the languages. So we, PHP and FFmpeg and other things that we use on the site, even Objective-C in the actual app, I've wanted to, to get under the hood mm. and see how it all works. Right. So as a sole founder, sole business founder, any plans going forward on how you might delegate different tasks to different people? Or? Yeah. So definitely delegating the sort of operations is probably the because I tend to get a lot you know, wrapped up in the idea and I know exactly what the big picture is and the big vision. Mm. And when I talk about motion pictures and episodes of TV shows being produced in our sort of system, that's great. But what are the small steps to get there? And Every day we're chipping away at the at the small steps, but the operational stuff sometimes suffers as a result. So that's definitely the area that I should delegate more. And But apart from that, I mean, my main role now, and we've received some funding, and we're about to go back into, out to the market for future funding, and my main role now will be to hiring the best people in, in those core roles. So that mm. may be a, uh, a chief technology officer has those same skills in the same languages, but is able to actually run that team. And it may be a chief marketing officer to delegate those two tasks. So yes, yeah, so that's definitely what I see my role now evolving into is being the person to find the best talent. But I also feel that 
because I understand how the system works in minute detail, actually interviewing those people is going to be easier. Yeah, so there's definitely some advantages either way. <laughs> well, there is, but I'm sure they would have been quicker um, <laughs> had I not had I delegated more. Mm, interesting. So I'm interested to hear more about your marketing strategy and your go-to-market strategy. How did you formulate the strategy? Are there any tools or courses that you guys did? I mean, how did you come up with this strategy? Well, we're very blessed actually to have a lot of good marketers in our advisory board and strategic advisors. So we've lent on them quite heavily, both for the idea phase, but also we've had some sessions with people who've actually built marketing plans uh, to actually work out some of the trickier stuff. I mean, all the metrics around the churn rate and the total lifetime value. And basically what we're trying to work out at the moment is, okay, so we could, uh, we hope, be as big as you know, any of the social media platforms, essentially, in the, if we get this right. Yeah. So the world is our oyster, but where do we start? It's almost too big a thing. So we've actually spent about three months chunking everything down and looking at every potential market, looking, okay, where's the low-hanging fruit and where do we reach them? And I mean, this is classic you know, marketing 101. But some of our assumptions initially, I mean, I think I was talking earlier about travel agents, and there definitely is a use case for travel agents because they have that need to get video on location. But then when we looked about looked at how many minutes of video they need a year, it's actually quite low. And then we looked at how we're actually going to reach them, and it's quite hard to reach them. Whereas people like travel bloggers or anyone who is an Instagrammer or anyone like that, there are many, many more of them. They're lower value, but higher volume. So we're, at the moment, we're trying to quantify, okay, which sales channel do we deploy for the high value, low volume customers? And then which channels do we do digitally for the high volume, low value customers? And this is the balance we're trying to find. But because we pivoted away from a two-sided marketplace approach towards the software as a service, we've also been working on what is actually the value, what are people willing to pay? And that's also been some science and methodology. So you've touched on a few pivots that you've made throughout your journey at Vloggy from business models to app features. How do you know when to pivot? I mean, a lot of small businesses... They're stubborn and they don't like to make changes straight away. So how do you know when to make pivots in different areas of your business? I'm probably the opposite of that. I'm what they call a neophile. You know, I kind <laughs> of always think that doing something new is the better way of doing it. And so I annoy everyone else in the team by <laughs> coming up with a new idea, a thought bubble on Monday. And I've kind of already worked it through into a, I've you know, written all the pages, the documentation stuff by the Wednesday, but then actually <laughs> implementing it. I leave to other people. And of course, they're sort of sometimes like, well, hold on, but I need more context around this. I need more explanation. So I'm very quick to pivot and to mm. see sort of new opportunities. And I guess the challenge for me, moving from a you know, solo founder who was able to just uh, act very nimbly to having a team was that level of responsibility about actually documenting things and proving things in order to give people the guidance to actually follow and implement these things. And are you a big reader, Justin? Um, I, yeah, definitely used to be. I've got three children, so um, and none of them like sleeping. So <laughs> um, the time to read is has diminished. In fact, I brought a book in with me, which is one that I would recommend. Um, the Narrow Road, A Brief Guide to the Getting of Money by Felix Dennis. Okay. And the reason it's good is because if you're time poor, which I am, mm. it basically distills everything you need to know about starting a business into, well, it's probably 200 words per idea. So Wow. On the fallacy of the great idea, this is what I was alluding to earlier. There's a fallacy rooted in the minds of many who wish to become rich. The fallacy that the great idea 
having a great idea is not enough. It's the manager, it's the manner in which ideas are executed that counts. And that sounds simple, but he actually, in each of the pages, on delegation, on persistence, on courtesy and negotiating, on every sort of aspect of, of business and silicon business, he gives just enough advice for you to, oh, okay, right, that's kind of what I should do. So it's kind of like almost having an old, wise strategic advisor who you can call on. So I keep this book close by. I mean, I do have Startup Manual and I have lots of the other books as well, but this book I refer back to quite regularly. Yeah, The Narrow Road. We'll include that in the show notes with all the other resources that we've mentioned today. And finally, Justin, just wanted to thank you for coming in, sharing value with the audience today. We have one last question that we'd like to ask our audience. It's a bit of an abstract question. Get the creativity flowing. So you ready to go? Sure. So you're on the first flight to Mars with Elon Musk and the first settlers aboard the SpaceX Starship rocket. What business do you start when you land on Mars and how would you promote it to the new Martians? Well, interesting. I was reading about this last week. The current theory is that they're going to have female-only crews going to Mars. Really? This being so because the only way to control human desires um, is to exclude men, basically. And they think the whole project could be jeopardized if you had men up there who wanted to recreate, uh, procreate. Right. So they're going to take up with them lots of frozen sperm from Earth. And assuming that Elon and I get killed, um, <laughs> so we're on the first flight, but then they implement the female-only plan. Mm. The business that we would set up before we get killed yes. is an AI-driven sperm bank. So kind of like a, <laughs> kind of like a dating agency. Kind of like a sort of Bumble or mm. a, uh, a soul soulmate finder yeah. that actually matches the right sperm to the right female scientists up there, and this is done not o- this will be done not only so how it will be marketed will be mm. some of the profiles and the pictures, but actually behind the scenes we've all done the analysis on the women to find out actually we need very tall people over there to, to do this bit of work. Right. So we've already pre-selected the, the the sperm on board. Marketing it to the women is another matter. But the AI engine behind the scenes, mm. so we, we need a success rate of kind of 75% on these impregnations. And It's quite an interesting algorithm. Yeah, I'm not sure how you do it, but I'll leave that to Elon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks again, Justin, for coming in today. Is there anything you'd like to say to the audience and where can they get in touch? Well, vloggy.com, V-L-O-G-G-I.com. And the first step we have in our process is, is building a, a template. Um, we offered to make those for people. I mean, we have an easy-to-use template builder, but we offered to make them. And I guess any listeners to this, mention the podcast, send an email to me, jw.vloggy.com, and we'll build a template for you. No, oh, amazing. No problem. And guys, all these show notes will feature every resource that we talked about today, including the Narrow Road book. So you can check that out at metag.com forward slash podcast. Justin, it's been fun. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. From Metagy, this is the Forward Thinking Podcast. I hope you got a lot of value and actionable tips from today's episode. If you like what you heard, you can help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. If you know a business owner who needs help with their marketing, and I mean, don't we all know one of those guys, tell them to check us out. Never miss another episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more about Metagy and get a listener-exclusive three-month free trial, 
visit us at metagy.com forward slash podcast. You can also view all of the resources and tools mentioned in this episode at metagy.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, why not listen to some other episodes and join the world's leading community of forward-thinking marketers. I'm Brendan Hill, your first business connection, and I'll catch you next week for another award-winning episode of the Forward Thinking Podcast.